Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5.11. We're going to read to chapter 6, verse 2. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearances and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I want to pray for Tom quickly as he preaches. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy and your patience. It says that your long suffering is our salvation. And today is the day of salvation. I pray you would strengthen each of our faith with the words that you have given and with the understanding and your Holy Spirit that you have given um, our brother Tom. I pray that you would give him strength in his weakness, give him strength to preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. The passage that, that we're looking at this morning and thus the message are about living as God-pleasing agents of reconciliation between men and God. God-pleasing agents of reconciliation between men and God. Now, all human beings are instruments or agents of God, whether they want to be or not. Throughout history, God has used both believers and unbelievers to accomplish His will on earth. He has used people of great influence. He has used people of very little influence. He has used people of very great pride in spite of themselves, and he has used people of great humility. But this passage is about what makes our service of God on Christ's behalf delightful to God. God prefers agents who love him because he has loved them. Now, what we're going to see in this passage is not a formula. It's not a checklist. Instead, it is a marvelous template for those to whom Jesus will say on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. 
In the verses just before this morning's passage, Paul talked about the earnest longing of every believer to be done with these mortal, dying bodies that he refers to as our earthly tents. And instead to be clothed with the new resurrection bodies, the transformed bodies that God has prepared for us. And then in verses 6 through 10, Paul said, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and we prefer rather to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. And then verse 9 is really the heart of this whole chapter. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord, to be pleasing to the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds of the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul is reminding every believer that our participation in the curse will soon be over. Praise God. That we will depart these temporary mortal bodies and we'll be where God created us to be, in His presence. And he's telling us that when that happens, we will, we will appear at some point before the judgment seat of Christ to give account for how we have served Him during our time on this earth. Now last time, when we looked at uh, what the New Testament says about the judgment of believers, we talked about the judgment of unbelievers and then about the judgment of believers, one of the key passages about the judgment of believers was 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. In that passage, Paul says that, that we will all give account to Christ in the last day for what we have built upon the foundation of Christ in the lives of other people. That's what that passage is talking about. We will be tested for what, what we have built on the foundation of Christ in the lives of other people. Now, some will have built on that foundation with wood, hay, and straw. And we all know what happens when you expose wood, hay, and straw to fire. And that's what the test will be, tested by fire. Others will have built on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones. In the end, all of those works, everything that we have built on the foundation that Christ has laid will be tested by fire. The one whose works burns up will suffer loss, but the passage very explicitly says, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. The one whose work remains will receive a reward from God. Paul earnestly desires that his life will fall into that second category, as all of us should, of course. He longs with all his heart for his service of Christ to be pleasing to God. He's not worried at all that he will ever face the condemning judgment of God. I, I pray that it was made clear in the two special messages we just did on judgment that the judgment that awaits us who are the children of God by faith in Christ does not involve his condemning wrath, his, his condemning judgment. Because of Christ's sacrifice of himself in our place, the second death we saw in Revelation 20, which is eternal condemnation, 
will never touch us who trust in Jesus. Our infinite sin debt to God was already paid in full when Jesus died in our place on the cross. I mentioned this verse, you hear it from me all the time. Truly, truly, John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is already crossed over out of death into life. That's God's promise to all who believe in Jesus. Paul's deep desire here in 2 Corinthians 5 is not to avoid the condemning judgment of Christ. He knows that every redeemed saint will never face that judgment. His heartfelt longing here is for his life of service to be pleasing to the one who saved him to the uttermost. It is against that backdrop that Paul now says in verse 11, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade them of what? Well, verses, verse 11 and then verse 20 toward the end of the chapter are very tied together. And, and verse 20 says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And we'll see as we get, when we get there that that is the, that is the proclamation that we as, as Christians make to the world, to the lost. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So now here he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Then later on he says, we urge you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The fear of the Lord to which Paul refers here the fear that drives him and his co-workers to persuade men, it could refer to a fear that Paul and his co-workers might be found on the last day to have squandered the gift and the assignment given to them by Christ. That would fit with what Paul just said about his earnest longing to be pleasing to God. It could also refer to the fear of God's coming wrath against those who do not trust in Jesus. The fear for the souls of the lost. That would fit well with where, what Paul is going to say a little later in this chapter about the ministry and word of reconciliation by which we urge sinners to be reconciled to God. Because both of those understandings fit the context so well, I, I think that kind of explains why Paul didn't elaborate on the fear that he's talking about. I believe that fear is, it's like, it works like this. Because we know that we who belong to Christ will soon give account to him for how we have represented him on earth, and because we know the terrible wrath of God that awaits sinners who do not come to faith in Jesus, therefore, we persuade men. In the rest of the passage, Paul lays out for us four marks of God-pleasing agents of reconciliation. Four characteristics of God-pleasing agents of reconciliation between men and God. Here are those four things. And we'll, you'll hear them again if you're trying to write them down. So first, God-pleasing agents of reconciliation desire to manifest godly integrity. Second, they are controlled by the love of Christ. Third, they see others as God sees. And finally, they embrace the ministry and the word of reconciliation. 
First, they desire to manifest godly integrity. A recurring theme in this letter, ever since chapter 2, is Paul's great confidence that he and his co-workers have been used and are being used by God in the lives of these Corinthian saints. Mightily used. And that confidence we saw in chapter 2 is grounded not at all in any sufficiency that comes from themselves. It's grounded entirely in God as their only sufficiency. Two of my favorite verses in the New Testament that I've said before have so dramatically impacted my own, my own ministry. The fact that I do this at all or anything else on behalf of Christ says this is the promise that we have from God. That's verse 4. And then verses 5 and 6, 2 Corinthians 3. This is the promise that we have from God. It says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's a marvelous promise. It means God uses all of His children according to His greatness and has nothing to do with our greatness. Nothing at all. That's very freeing. It's very liberating. Paul, filled with this confidence, he knows that he's useful to God and we're supposed to know that we're useful to God. But, but again, let me point out, usefulness to God does not ultimately depend on our faithfulness or our integrity, spiritual integrity. God used Pharaoh to glorify himself. Mightily, in the eyes of the Israelites, the Egyptians, and a whole lot of other people in the ancient Near East. Just ask Rahab the harlot. God used Balaam to bless Israel over and over, even though Balaam was doing his level best to make a fortune by betraying Israel. God will use every person and everything in his creation to accomplish his will. But beloved, God's calling to us whom he has redeemed by the blood of Christ is that we will live as faithful agents who do things that please him, that delight him. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 11 when he says, we are made manifest to God. God already sees our hearts. I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. He wants to please God. He's not about men pleasing, but part of pleasing God as agents of Christ is that we look like Christ to the world. They see, they see true spiritual integrity in us in the work of ministry. That's one of the things that Paul hopes for. Now, Paul's not concerned about appearances that don't reflect what's actually true. In verse 12, he speaks of those who, quote, take pride in appearance and not in heart. He, he wants no part of such things. Agents of God should be WYSIWYG. Y'all know what that means? What you see is what you get. There you go. It came out, I'm an old Macintosh fan, Apple, when Macs came out. In the old days, PCs had to have colors to represent different kinds of fonts. So you had purple for italics and you had blue for bold, right? Because you couldn't, you couldn't actually see the, what it was going to look like on the printed page. Well, Mac changed all that. And then Windows stole what Mac did. Sorry. No, I'm, no, sorry. Move on. <laughs> I supported Windows for 18 years. Now I'm using my Mac again. Uh, 
one of my continual prayers to God is that there will be no duplicity in my heart or in my actions. That That I'll be an open book to God's people. As I already am to him, he sees everything. Nothing gets by him. And that, uh, and that what is seen in me will be genuine integrity. The first thing that Paul says is true of God-pleasing agents of reconciliation between men and God is that they desire to manifest godly integrity. The second, verses 13 to 15, is that they are controlled by the love of Christ. They're controlled by the love of Christ. What a statement. In in, uh, 1 John 4, John says, we love because he first loved us. Christ's love for us, poured out and proven at the cross, produces our love for Christ and for other people, like that glass up there talks about. Here in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 13 and 14, Paul turns our focus to the very same unbreakable connection between the cross and the joyful, sold-out Christian life that John was talking about in 1 John 4. Paul says, if we are beside ourselves, (laughs) it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see how the cross is in focus here? The best news any of us will ever hear is that Jesus died and rose again on our behalf for us to reconcile us to God when we could never accomplish that by ourselves. But Jesus' purpose in dying on the cross went beyond securing a place for us in his kingdom and in his presence forever. His purpose was also, his purpose was also to create ambassadors on earth who are controlled by the love that sent him to the cross. Bearers of that love whom he will use to fill his eternal kingdom with redeemed men and women and children. How often do you hear Christians say to one another, Jesus died to make me useful? We say Jesus died to save me. He died died so I could go to heaven. But beloved, Jesus died also so that between now and the time that we stand in his presence, we will be eternally and mightily used by him as willing, joyful, God-pleasing agents on earth. The great love that controls us is Christ's love for us. I want to make this very clear. It would be really easy to flip that around and to say what Paul is getting at here is that our love for Christ is what drives us and empowers us and controls us and makes us useful. If that were the case, we would need to constantly scrutinize the quality and the quantity of our love for Christ because because usefulness that pleases God would depend on that. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying of himself and his co-workers, we are beside ourselves 
because of the redeeming love that Christ has lavished upon us. In John chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus said to his disciples, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love for you. Beloved, that love, his love for us, controls us. His love for us is our one legitimate obsession in this life. If there's anything that should cause other people to see you and me as obsessed to the point of being unbalanced, even downright crazy, it should be that we find no other life-giving root, no other firm ground in this life than the breadth and length and height and depth of the boundless four-dimensional love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. One of the saddest things I've ever beheld is a Christian who lives for the love of another sinful human being. That is one of the most, one of the most destructive kinds of relationship that exists. And Christians do it worse than anybody. A person who lives for the love of another sinful human being, even if it's their spouse who obsessively seeks to win and to hold that other person's affection at any cost. There's no room for the love of Christ in that miserable state of affairs. The person, that person has pitched his or her tent in a powerless love that can never satisfy, it can never motivate to godliness, it can never produce joy in serving. On the other hand, Christ's love is an overflowing well. Has no bounds, no limits, no end. The superabounding love that Jesus showered upon us at the cross is a controlling love. It's what gets us up in the morning, filled with anticipation of eternal usefulness for our Savior, our Master, the lover of our souls. It is the love that drives our thoughts, our prayers, our words, and our actions. It is the love that compels us to love others as we have been loved by Christ. Any other obsession, anything else that, that controls us, is an entirely unworthy obsession. And we can't have both. Many things may inform our lives, beloved, but the love of Christ alone controls our lives. This is the difference between burdensome Christianity and joyful Christianity. The love of Christ controls us. The third mark of God-pleasing agents of reconciliation is that they see others as God sees. And this, again, is an important truth for us to reckon with. This is verses 16 and 17. Paul zeroes in on the most fundamental distinction that exists between human beings, a distinction that David Dean talked about a few weeks ago. He says here, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, 
He is the new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Every human being is either in Christ or not in Christ. If a person is not in Christ, then he's still in Adam. And he still bears the guilt and penalty, the full weight of the guilt and penalty of his sin on his own shoulders. The condition of a person's physical body won't tell us which of those categories he, he is in. Even the sinless Jesus lived for 33 years in a frail and mortal body. You know how we know it's mortal? It died. You know what the word mortal means? Subject to death. But we now know him thus no longer. He's been raised from the grave, the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus now is as we who have been brought into union with him soon shall be. For all whose trust is in Jesus, everlasting resurrection life is our eternal destiny. But here's what's so marvelous. We already have it. We haven't realized it in full, but we already have it. John 5.24 again. Jesus said, whoever hears his word and believes the one who sent him, we talked about that testimony, already has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is crossed over out of death into life. Not the physical aspect of that life. We don't have that yet. That part's coming. But, beloved, we do have spiritual resurrection life right now. This is one of the most prominent and repeated themes that we find in Paul's letters to the saints. For all who trust in Jesus, our identity and our nature have already been forever transformed. Our identity and our nature. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says we are to put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's your true identity. That is your true nature if, you, if your trust is in Jesus. That's who God says you are created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, the truth that's in Christ. When Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 5 that every, every Christian, every child of God is a new creation, he's saying the same thing that he says everywhere. He's certainly not saying that Christians perfectly or fully manifest their new identity in nature. But every Christian is a new creation in Christ. The identity the nature that was true of us apart from Christ is no longer true of us. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. I, I, this is one of the things that I just, I pray with all my heart, each of us will, will come to recognize and to see the magnitude and the practical power of this. We need to stop thinking of ourselves as the old man and start recognizing, start agreeing with God that he has made us new. 
If you don't believe that, you're not going to act very new. We're to count that as true every day. Every day. It is the love of God that accomplished that. When Paul says, from now on we recognize no man according to the flesh, he's presenting a defining and empowering truth that God intends for every child of his to have firmly in mind every day of our lives. The divisions that plagued the church in Corinth and the distractions from their God-ordained commission that sidelined many of them from usefulness proceeded from the same flesh-focused view of life that still causes division in the church today. Beloved, the heart of practical unity in the body of Christ, what makes us actually live as one in Christ is that we see one another in Christ. We recognize one another in Christ. But since each of us is still doing battle against the enticements and habit of the old man, the old nature that's no longer our identity, guys, that means we have to choose to look for and to expect to see the new man in one another. We have to choose to look for Christ in one another. We're very good at the habit of seeing the old man. How good are we? How good are we at looking for and looking at the new person that God has made each of us? That new man is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Even in our correction of one another, our appeal is always to be grounded in the marvelous reality that every one of us who belongs to Jesus Christ through faith in Him alone has been baptized into Christ. Our new identity and our true identity is that we are in Christ. We who are, were many are now one in Him. When Paul rebukes and corrects Christians, who, by the way, looked in his day pretty much the way we look now, he continually does so by appealing to the true identity and nature of those he is correcting when he's talking to Christians, which is, that's who his letters are written to. This is front and center in passage after passage of Paul's letters, and it's not just Paul. It's Peter, it's John, it's James, it's the writer of Hebrews, it's Jude. Listen, in Ephesians 5.11, Paul exhorts the saints not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even to expose them. What is his basis in that appeal? Look at the passage, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Be who you are, not who you aren't. And he says, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. In the chapter just before that one, Ephesians 4, he said, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for building up, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And the very next thing he says is, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So what's the basis of the appeal? 
to say godly things. You've been signed, sealed, and are soon to be delivered into the kingdom of God. You're His. His love has transformed you. His love has given you life that will last forever. So don't grieve Him. Please Him. The joyful Christian life, controlled by the love of Christ. Do you look for Christ in your Christ-redeemed spouse? In your Christ-redeemed boss, if you were blessed to have one? In your Christ-redeemed brother and sister sitting in this room? If you're looking for him, you will surely see him. And your relationship with that fellow saint will be greatly blessed in the seeing. As will the oneness of the body of Christ. Or are you looking through a lens that sees only the old nature that God says no longer defines or identifies that brother or sister? Are you agreeing with God or are you not? From now on, let us recognize no man according to the flesh. May we see Christ in those who are in Christ. And friends, may we see those who are not in Christ as desperately needful of Christ. And that brings us to the assignment with which Paul finishes out this great passage. God-pleasing agents of reconciliation between men and God embrace the ministry and the word of reconciliation. They embrace the ministry and the word of reconciliation. In verse 18, Paul turns from our dealings with one another to our dealings with those who remain lost and enslaved to sin. His focus is now on the church's stewardship of the gospel. He's not talking about Christians being reconciled with each other. He's not talking about Christians being restored to fellowship with God if they backslidden. He's talking about the ministry and the message that we as Christians all share as one when we carry, as we carry on Christ's work to seek and to save the lost. First, Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation. Then he talks about the word of reconciliation. Verse 18, first part of verse 19, he speaks of the ministry of reconciliation. He says, now all things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Isn't that great? He, he gave us the ministry to be instruments to do for other people what he did for us. We're just instruments. He's the one who does the reconciling. That's what it says. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's about the gospel. So Paul names our assignment, the ministry of reconciliation, then he explains what the name means. Our ministry, our service on Christ's behalf is to be instruments of God's reconciliation of the world to himself in Christ. Again, we don't do the reconciling. God does in Christ. We're just agents. In the second part of verse 19, Paul says, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. See, our ministry has content. And then just as he did with the ministry of reconciliation, he immediately tells us what that word of reconciliation is. 
He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. And now, if you've got your Bibles, please look at them. At verses 20, 520b, the second part of verse 20, through chapter 6, verse 2. And what I'm going to propose is that all of that should be in quotes. Everything from 520b, after he says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, now he presents the entreaty. He presents the appeal, and the appeal is in, should be in quotes. He's saying, here's what we say to lost sinners. This isn't, again, it's not a formula, doesn't cover all bases, it's a template. The words of this appeal are not directed toward the Corinthian saints. Having been justified by faith, they already have peace with God, just like Paul does. Just like we do, if we belong to Christ. The words of chapter 5, verse 20b through chapter 6, verse 2 are a template for our gospel appeal. As bearers of the ministry of reconciliation, here is the word of reconciliation. The appeal that we make to an unbelieving world. You ready? We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he, Christ says... At the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, end quote. You and I have been commissioned by God to say to unbelievers, fellow sinner, through us, whom God has already reconciled by the blood of Christ, he is calling you to be reconciled by the blood of Christ. Jesus became sin for you. Jesus took on the full guilt and penalty of your sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. Trust Him, and you, like we, will be saved to the uttermost. The only way that, that Christ's payment for sin on the cross gets applied to a human soul is when He brings that soul to faith, when that person trusts in Him. And then the second part of what we say is, through us, Jesus is saying to you that today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. You might not have a tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Beloved, the gospel that God calls us to set before sinners every day comes with divine authority and with very great urgency. Authority and urgency. The word of reconciliation is to be proclaimed with the authority of Christ himself. He is making this appeal through us. And it comes with the greatest urgency of any message ever proclaimed. I've repeatedly heard missionaries and evangelists relate stories about how they began a conversation with, the, with an unbeliever by saying something like this. It was by the kindness of God that you just opened your door to me because this is a divine appointment. What I have to share with you is from God. And it is a matter of eternal life or eternal death. 
yours. Now, I have to tell you, I find it really hard to use words like that. I'm afraid somebody's going to slam a door in my face or hit me over the head with a brick. But that level of authority and urgency is very much in line with what our Lord is saying right here through Paul, isn't it? And I should care a whole lot more about the soul of that lost person than I do about whether that brick hits my head. Whatever words we do use, we must speak with the authority and urgency that the word of reconciliation of man to God by the blood of Jesus Christ merits. We should never be apologetic or timid, and we should not be reluctant to declare that God is speaking through us. 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul said to Timothy, his beloved protege, he said, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline. All right, so we've got four marks of God-pleasing agents of reconciliation between men and God. First, we desire to manifest godly integrity. Secondly, we are controlled by the love of Christ. Third, we see others as God sees. And finally, we embrace the ministry and proclaim the word of reconciliation, and we do so with authority. And we do so with authority, and we do so with urgency. Authority and urgency. Let's pray. Loving Father, we ask for that. We, <laughs> we, ask, we ask that you would control these vessels with the love of Christ. The overflowing, abundant, immeasurable love of Christ that you've lavished upon us. Father, take control of us, of our hearts, of our words, our thoughts, our actions. Father, put us to use in a way that delights you. We don't want to be used in spite of ourselves, Father. We want to be used as willing and joyful vessels who love to please the lover of our souls, who died to make us yours forever. Father, I pray for any who are here today who do not know Jesus. I pray that any who came uh, still trusting in themselves or in anything else to make them worthy of Christ, worthy of your kingdom, that they'll abandon, they will abandon that pursuit and they will trust only in Jesus. Only you, Father, can make that happen. Only you can draw a lost soul out of the darkness into your astonishing light. So we look to you and we ask you to do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.